he uses that judge to lead them out of oppression. And then they're out of oppression for a period of time, and they fall right back into it, and they sin. And then they're sold back into oppression again, and the cycle just goes on and on. God, throughout this whole book, uses these judges to deliver his people. And several of the judges in this book, they are just bright lights in the spiritual darkness of Israel during that time. They just stand out. They're faithful uh, servants of the Lord. And then there is Samson. He's a little different from the rest of them. Uh, We noted last week, he just has a hard time being obedient to the will of God. Samson was all about Samson. He pursued his desires most of the time, failed to uh, follow the Nazarite law. His priority was not pleasing God. His priority was pleasing himself. Physically, Samson was a strong and imposing figure. I mean, we can, we've read some of his exploits. We still haven't read the greatest of his exploits. Physically, he was strong and imposing. Spiritually, he was weak and anemic. He just didn't have it in him. There was something about him that always yielded to the flesh. In fact, last week, we, we really talked about revenge And many of Samson's actions were motivated by revenge against those who had offended him or his sinful pursuits of these ungodly women. He just went after wrong relationships all of the time. I I wrote a note to myself here to remind us, there is more told to us about the story of Samson than any other judge And yet he is not a good example for us to follow. When you read the story of Joseph, for example, boy, the the book of Genesis, a quarter of that book talks about this one man, Joseph. And if there's a guy in the Bible outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, if there's a guy in the Bible to emulate, it is Joseph. But so much is said about Samson, but the manner in which he lived his life leads us then to study it, but not to follow it. Don't follow in his footsteps. One of the greatest lessons that we learn from Samson's life is that our greatest enemy is our flesh. Now, you might want to write down the devil in there, but I wouldn't if I were you. Because you don't need the devil to sin. You can do that all by yourself. The devil finds a very willing partner in my flesh, when he brings on his temptation, he's got a very willing co-conspirator in my flesh. And it's our greatest enemy. And Samson shows us this. So consequently, learning to conquer our flesh through the Holy Spirit is one of the most vital keys to victorious Christian living. If you want to experience more victory in your life, learn how to live victoriously over the flesh. Your, your flesh, my flesh, it is, it is bent towards sin. It's attracted to it. It's, it's like a magnet to iron. So learn how to live victoriously through the Holy Spirit. But tonight, finally, I want to speak tonight on Samson's finest hour. His finest hour. Samson's star doesn't climb much higher than it does here in just these three short verses. Now, the sad part is this. This is the best that Samson does right here. You're you're not going to read 
another passage of scripture in Samson's short biography where you can say, okay, then I need to do that. Now, what we talk about here tonight with Samson, this is where we follow him. He sets a good pattern here. Not in most of his stories, but here he does. Because in a moment of desperation, he casts himself at the mercy of God. And he acknowledges God's place. We're going to talk about that. This is, spiritually speaking, this is Samson's finest hour. He's weak, he's physically weak, and he recognizes what he has to do, and he calls on the name of the Lord. So we're going to look tonight at some lessons that will help us, I hope, to live cleaner and more productive lives for God's glory and not our own. So we're looking, we're still in Judges chapter 15, and we're looking at the last three verses, starting at verse number 18 and through the end of the chapter. Remember that he has just had that battle where he found a jawbone. The Bible says he found a jawbone of an ass and he killed a thousand Philistines with with that. This is right on that day. This is right on the day of that battle. Verse 18, and he was sore athirst and called on the name or called on the Lord and said, thou hast given this great deliverance into the hand of thy servant. And now shall I die for thirst and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised? But God clave and hollow place that was in the jaw, and there came water thereout, and when he had drunk, his spirit came again, and he revived. Wherefore he called the name thereof Enhekkori, which is in Lehi unto this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines twenty years. So those three verses, Samson's finest hour, uh, let's, let's look at what, what makes this the best spiritual demonstration in his life, at least as recorded in Scripture. What is it that stands out here? Well, first, let's start with Samson's condition in verse number 18. The first part of verse number 18 says that he was sore athirst. That's his condition, the reason for his condition. He just killed a thousand guys with a jawbone. He's wore out. Remember in, in, in chapter 15, verse number one, it says that this, this story is taking place in the time of the wheat harvest. It's a hot time of the year in the land of Canaan, in the nation of Israel. And he is described here as being sore athirst. I think he was probably hot and dehydrated. You ever seen a guy that goes one-on-one, 15 rounds in a heavyweight fight? You ever seen those guys at the end of that boxing match? Imagine one against a thousand and that battle going on for hours and hours. I mean, a fight, a title fight for a heavyweight boxer, if it goes all 12 rounds at three minutes around, he's fought for 36 minutes. Here's one man in the heated sun of, uh, of Israel in a hot time of the year with, with a jawbone and he, he fights and and conquers 1,000 men. I don't think this is speaking symbolically. I, I think he killed 1,000 guys. The Holy Spirit knows how to count. I think he killed 1,000 guys in this battle. And the Bible says at the end of it, he is hot, he's thirsty. And I, I just am I'm saying all this to let you know and remind you that spiritual battles will do the same thing to you spiritually. They will wear you out. 
Some of you have been involved in spiritual battles and you fought the devil and you fought the flesh. And I'm not talking about daily temptations. I'm going, I'm talking about a concerted attack like the devil on Job. When you go through those battles, they will leave you in the same condition that, that he's in. Spiritually exhausted. Thirsty for the presence of God and the refreshing of God in your life. The Bible, when it, it just doesn't say he thirsted. It said he was sore athirst. I think he's dehydrated. And sometimes when we do spiritual battle, that's what happens to us. So the reason for his condition is the battle that he was in. And then there's the reality of Samson's condition. What, what was his reality at that time? He thought he was going to die. Did, did you catch that in that verse? That's what he asks God. He says, thou hast given this great deliverance into the hand of thy servant, and now shall I die for thirst? This was such a real, uh, this was such a real thing to him that, that he felt like he was thirsting to death for all of his great strength. For all of the things he's already accomplished in, in, when it comes to victory, he's unable to defend himself against this enemy of, of thirst. I think God brought him to this place to remind him that he's not self-sufficient. I think that's a good place for us to live. We, we ought to remember we are not self-sufficient. A lot of times, I mentioned this before, and, I, and again, I love our country and I'm thankful for our country's history. But there is this swagger to the American mindset that we are somehow self-sufficient. And we are nothing but a turtle on a fence post. You remember that analogy? If you ever see a turtle on a fence post, what do you know? He didn't get there by himself. And that's America. But sometimes we swagger as Americans and we swagger as though we're self-sufficient and we are not. We, like Paul said, we are what, what we are by the grace of God, and that's it. And Samson's being reminded here, he's not self-sufficient. The only reason he was able to kill a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of this donkey is in, it's in verse number 14. Because the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. And that's the only thing he had. John 15, uh, verse 5, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he reminds them at the end of that verse, without me ye can do nothing. And the reality of his condition is he is not self-sufficient. He is rather very dependent. And his success is really God's success. When Brother Charlie was praying a moment ago, he prayed and he quoted that scripture from Acts 17 that says, in him, Acts 17, 28 says, in him we live and move and have our being. What you and I do, we only do by the grace of God. And Samson's in this condition that he's in. And he's, he's where he's at so God can remind him, Samson, you need me. You're, you're nothing without me. I don't remember the, all the lyrics of the song, but there's an old gospel. There's an old gospel song, and part of it, part of that chorus says, "I can't even walk." Talking to God, it says, "I can't even walk without you holding my hand." That's true, and that's where Samson was. And you and I, you and I would do ourselves well in our Christian life. It would help us to remember how dependent we are on God. Don't get too far away from that dependence. When you're making decisions, 
make those decisions from God's, from God's point of view, when you're making purchases, when you're developing relationships, when you're choosing where to serve and how to serve, do that from God's perspective, God's frame of reference. Paul had to, Paul had to learn this lesson. Hold, hold your finger here if you want to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And this is, a, this is a pretty familiar passage of scripture, but 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse number 7 Paul is talking about this thorn in the flesh. Do you remember that? And this is what Paul writes. Lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations. God has given me all of these things. He he has shown me so many things, Paul is saying. He's shown me things I never knew. And lest I should become lifted up, exalted beyond measure, if I just to keep me from getting cocky. Is that what that means? He says, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That's... That's a pretty fantastic statement. But then look what he says in verse 10. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, or that's lackings, needs that I have, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. I am become a fool in glorying. Ye have compelled me, for I ought to have been commended of you. For in nothing am I behind the very chiefest apostles, though I be nothing. Well, you catch that. I'm take, the things he takes pleasure in, and then the apostle Paul. Perhaps the greatest missionary that Jesus Christ ever ordained. A walking a walking encyclopedia of Old Testament knowledge with New, New Testament application joined together. Paul says, I am nothing. That's, that's what we're talking about. Samson's condition. He was thirsting the way he was because God wanted him to know, I am your source. I'm your source. That's Samson's condition. The second part of verse 18, back in Judges 15 now, the second part of verse number 18, you have Samson's cry. In this, in this moment of weakness, and he hasn't really known that before, has he? At least not in the biblical record. We haven't read, we haven't read anywhere of him being weak, but in this moment, he does, he, he does hear the smartest thing recorded in scripture so far in his life. What does he do? He calls out to God. Did you know it's the first time since we've been studying him? Did you know it's the first time he's called out to God? This Nazarite who was set apart from the womb, at least in the Bible record, this is the first time that he's called out to God. And he says this little 27-word prayer. And he speaks volumes in it. He confesses some things about himself and he professes some things uh, about God. 
For example, this is, first of all, a cry of humility. That's a new word in a sentence with Samson, isn't it? Have we had those two words in the same sentence yet? Humility and Samson, humble and Samson, I don't think we have. But this is a cry of humility. I want you to compare verse number 18, the the prayer that he makes here. Would you compare it to the poem that he gave us in verse number 16? I'll give you just a minute to read those two verses. Read verse 18 in his prayer, and then read his little his little poem in verse 16, and note the difference. Verse 16, it's all about Samson. Verse 18, it's all about the Lord. He cries out to the Lord. He called on the Lord, the Bible says, and he cries out, I think, in, in humility. He confesses here his dependence on God, and he acknowledged, did you see that? God gave him that victory. He hasn't done that in any of the others. The other ones, it's all been about him. But he says in verse number 18, Thou hast given this great deliverance. The victory of these one over these 1,000. He's saying that was God's work. And if God doesn't keep working in Samson's life, he says, I'm going to die. I'm going to die of thirst here if you don't, con- if you don't continue this. With Samson now, it's no longer about personal glory. That's not what he's, that's not what he's emphasizing here. Now he's recognizing that, that he's depending on God to survive. I'm going to thirst to death. I, I would just, and again, I'm trying to draw these practical applications out of this. He's praying like this. We should pray like that. We should pray in desperation. That's how we approach him. We don't come to God making demands. And Samson is not making demands here. For once, his heart seems to be in the right way. He doesn't come making demands that somehow he is owed something by God. And a lot of times people come to the throne demanding things. We don't want to ever pray like that. We never want to pray like that. Our hearts should be humble before him. What of all of the verses and the illustrations of the potter and the clay? Jeremiah 18 being one of the greatest but then Paul's going to pick it up later and he's going to say, can the, can the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Well, Samson comes here the right way. And, and yes, you and I, look, we are told to come boldly before the throne of God, aren't we? Hebrews chapter 4, we're told to come boldly before the throne. But the only reason we can come boldly before the throne of God is because of his grace already extended to us as his children. We do not go demanding things. Even in our boldness, we come as children seeking a petition of our Heavenly Father. I, left a, I think I left a phrase on your, on your worksheet, a child's innocent expectation. Now, when kids get a little older, they might be a little more demanding. But younger kids, they'll come to you and sometimes they'll ask, they'll ask something of you. And they're absolutely convinced that you can get it for them. You may not be able to afford it. You may not be able to build it or make it or create it or whatever. But they just believe. They come to you and they have no problem asking you for that. It is an innocent expectation that they come to their parent, their mother or their father, and say, could you do this for me? Now, I'd like to be able to tell every one of my kids when they were that age and had such a good question. I'd love to have been able to say, absolutely. But there were times when there was no way I could do that. But I love the way they come to you. 
and they just believe that you can. That's how we should come to God, with an innocent expectation. You know why? Because he wants to do for his children. I I know I refer to this verse a lot, but I love Luke chapter 12 and verse 32 when Jesus says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He takes pleasure in doing for his children. And so come to him like that. First of all, Samson's prayer, it's a cry of humility. And finally, he sees, that wasn't me. God, you gave that victory over those thousand. That's the first part of his prayer, a cry of humility. It's also a cry of honor, a cry of honor. Samson humbles himself here and he looks to God, but he also takes time in this verse His words are exalting God, and he does that in in three different ways. First of all, he acknowledged God's power. He gave credit, as I said a moment ago, he gave credit to God for the victory. He said, thou hast given this great deliverance. He acknowledged this, and I'm, I'm playing with words here for a moment, so let me do this right. He acknowledged that though his hand was on the jawbone, it was God that gave the power. Now, let me, let me mix this up a little bit because perspective on this battle is very important. What he said was, I may have been holding the jawbone, but God gave the victory. That's a good perspective. The wrong perspective is... God gave the victory, but it was my hand on the jawbone. Do you see the switch? I talked to a pastor one time, and that's exactly what he said about the founding of the church that he planted. And the sentence was, this is God's church, but he used me to plant it. That's a dangerous perspective. Samson says this, it was my hand on the jawbone, but I'm acknowledging right now, God, You gave this great deliverance. I'm just a tool in the hand of God. That is a wonderful perspective for you and me. God may do great things through us, but may our perspective always be, Lord, it's, this is all attributed to you. I mean, look, he used the jawbone of a donkey. So what? It's not much of a, it's not much of a climb for him to use me. It's about God. It's his power. He acknowledged God's power. Boy, keep the right perspective on that. Every victory you or I have in this life is the result of God's good grace and his good power. And can I just just encourage you when you're praying and you have your prayer time and part of your time in prayer personally and alone with God, it ought to be a time of praise. There ought to be things when you're praying that you praise God for. One of those things ought to be his great power. He's an omnipotent God. He can do anything. Praise him for his power. Samson, first of all, acknowledged God's power. Second, he acknowledged God's place. There's something else that you read here for the first time in the Bible from Samson, and that's his confession that he is God's servant. He calls himself, in verse number 18, thy servant. 
It's an acknowledgement of God's place. He's recognizing finally God's authority in his life. He hasn't done that yet. We haven't seen any of that. And sometimes we fail to remember who the master is and who the servant is. But I would remind you that when you see in the New Testament Paul's use of the word servant, Paul an apostle and a servant of Jesus Christ, I would remind you that that word servant is our word slave. Remember he's the master. Acknowledge God's place in your life. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 19 and 20 said that God purchased us to himself. And Paul says it like this. What? Know ye not? Do you remember that phrase? That, that verse? Know ye not that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? And he goes on to say, you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Do you know what that means? That means that God has exclusive rights to our lives. He gets to direct my life and your life however he sees fit. Sometimes he'll direct, he'll direct our lives and it's not the season that we really want him doing that directing in. I, I texted my wife today. And I, you know, I liked it when our kids needed us more. Can I say it like that? I liked it when our kids needed our help or our input a little more. I'm proud of my kids. Don't, don't take that wrong. But I, I liked it when they needed mom and dad a little more than they do now. And so I'm just telling you, you can pray for me this. That's one of those seasons in life where I'm struggling with that a little bit. And sometimes God does things in our lives at a time or in a manner that we don't necessarily agree with. But he's got exclusive rights to us. Why? Because he bought me. He created me, and then he bought me. He redeemed me, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6. So let's remember our place as the servants of the Lord, that he is the one. He's the one calling it. Samson's prayer here acknowledged God for his power. He acknowledges God's place in his life. I am your servant. And then the third thing is he acknowledges God's preeminence. And this, it's an interesting end to his prayer. Do you see at the very end of his prayer, he talks about falling into the hands of the uncircumcised. That's what he's calling the Philistines. He's making the distinction there between the Jew and the uncircumcised Gentile or the Philistines. And he's saying, God, I've, I've I've been used by you to, to bring about this victory. If I die here, if they get a hold of my body, they're going to they're gonna defame your name because they will say they defeated me and I'm your servant. He recognizes here God's preeminence. He's concerned that if he dies of thirst, they would take his body and use it in a way to dishonor Jehovah. Some of you will remember what happened in Mogadishu when that Black Hawk helicopter went down and how they took the bodies of our servicemen. Do you remember the, do you remember the terrible agony that we felt as a nation seeing the bodies of those men desecrated the way they were? That was us as Americans. Samson saying, That's what would happen to the name of a holy God. 
Lord, don't, don't let me die of thirst here and my dead body be used to desecrate your good name. I don't want to fall into the hand of the uncircumcised Philistines. I really don't think here that Samson's focus is on himself. In that last phrase of this prayer, every other part of the prayer is about God. And I believe that last phrase is as well. He's concerned about the glory and the name of God. And we ought to live our lives, church, with that in mind. Don't let our body, don't let our body do anything that that brings shame to the name of God or to the glory of God. Every decision you make, every conversation you have, every, every motive that you have, bring it into the perspective of, does this glorify God or does it bring shame to him? 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether therefore you eat or drink, or whatsoever you do. Remember, the context of that is, is the meat in the marketplace. And, and Paul says, no matter what you're doing, if you're eating this or drinking that, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And when we're not filled with the Spirit, we tend to do what we want. We go where we want. We say what we want. And Paul calls that fulfilling the lust of the flesh. And when we're doing those things, we give no thought at all as to how our, uh, how our lives reflect the glory of the God we we say we love and we serve. So be careful with that. So what's what's the point? Our first consideration in every area of life should be to ask ourselves, will this action glorify God or will it diminish his glory? Will it glorify him or will it diminish his glory? For a lot of people, the glory of God never even flickers on the radar of their life. And for most of his life, that was Samson. We've seen that. But in this, in this brief moment here, in this bright, brief moment, Samson is concerned about God's reputation. So the primary, of, uh, the primary goal of our life ought to be to bring glory to him. And that's what I think is the end of verse number 18. Samson wants to protect the name of God. So you have Samson's condition. He's thirsty. Then you have his cry, and he cries out to the right one, and I believe for the right reason. In verse number 19, you have Samson's comfort, his comfort. There's the miraculous answer there in verse number 19 of, of, God, uh, of God answering his prayer. In fact, that's my first part in Samson's comfort, God's response. Isn't this a great passage Samson prays God answers there's something that that catches me here and it's it falls back under the sovereignty of God and God can do what he wants to do we've talked before how we've said before that in the Jewish in the Jewish uh, uh, culture donkeys mules they were unclean animals also, for the Nazarite, he wasn't to touch a dead body. And yet here, God uses the jawbone of a dead, unclean animal, and he uses that to meet, he uses that to meet Samson's need. It seems to me, in my, in my brain, that seems to be a conflict. I, 
And it's not, apparently it's not me because I was reading one commentator and his thing was, well, the name of that place, Lehi, actually means jawbone. So probably what happened is the ground opened up and a well sprang forth. Boy, you got you to gotta do some serious reading in some other language to come up with that explanation because the simple explanation is God brought water out of a jawbone of a dead donkey. That's, that's the answer. Just because I can't justify that doesn't mean it didn't happen. Now, here's, here's the truth. God can do what he wants to do. Do you remember that story in Acts chapter 10 where Peter's going back and forth with uh, the Lord on this vision that he had? And he kept saying, this is unclean. And God says to him, hey, if I call it clean, don't you call it unclean? You don't get to do that, Peter. So when I come, to, uh, when I come here to Judges chapter 15... God says to me, Mark, you don't get to say it's unclean if I've called it clean. If I choose to use the dry, dead bone of a donkey uh, to bring water and supply for my servant, then I'll do that. And you know what? God can do that because he's God. And that's his response here. I don't know why this happened, but I do believe God gave water not out of the ground in a land called, in the English language, we would call that uh, we would call that the height of a, of a jawbone. That word, Lehi, where he's at, that word means jawbone. And so I just believe God did what he did here, just like the Bible says. He gave water out of this bone. He hears our prayers, and then he answers them. There's a cycle here, and I've, I've been interspersed scripture verses for each one of them, to which we don't have time to turn tonight, but here, here's how this goes. First, in Jeremiah 33, 3, God invites us to pray. And then he promises to hear our prayer when we pray. That's Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 24. And then he promises not only to hear our prayer, but to answer it. In Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. And, and when you make that prayer request, there's no There's no request that's too insignificant. And there's no request that's too big. Have you ever prayed to God to help you find your keys? I have. That's a good plan. He cares about that. So he invites us to pray. He promises to hear when we pray. He promises to answer our prayer. And he invites us to come boldly, Hebrews 4.16. He calls on us to cast our cares on him in 1 Peter 5, 7. And then in Psalm 37, verses 4 through 7, he says, Now you can rest in the Lord because I'm omniscient and I'll take care of this. This is a wonderful answer to prayer that that he prays. God, I'm going to die of thirst if you don't give me something to drink. And he throws himself at the feet of God, at the feet of Jehovah, and God hears him, and he answers him, and he gives him exactly what he needs. That's, that's God's response, and it leads to Samson's revival. Samson's revival. God miraculously answers this prayer. He gives him what he needs at that particular moment. And when Samson appropriated what God gave him, the Bible says this, that Samson revived. Mark that word. This is a physical refreshment. It literally means to be nourished, quickened, 
repaired, restored, and sometimes it means to be saved alive. Samson said, if I don't get something to drink, I'm going to die. God saved him alive. And Samson was revived here. Now, this is a physical revival. He was physically revived. His body was refreshed. It was dehydrated. God hydrated him. Samson kept living. He, He didn't die. You and I need, in that same sense, we need spiritual revival at times in our life. There are two reasons, or two times rather, when God's people need revival. First of all is in in times of wickedness. When we are sinning, when we are walking in a path that we should not, and we're doing so willingly. We've not been deceived. We are living in a time of wickedness. And then there are times of weakness that we need revival. Samson was in a time of weakness physically. And times of weakness spiritually, we too need to be revived. In both of those instances, the answer is the same for the need. Whether it's wickedness or weakness, the answer to that need is the same. It's the word of God. In the New Testament, Paul says that there is the water of the word that washes us. And so we need God to open his word to our hearts and we need him to restore our spiritual life like he restored Samson's physical life here. Either to battle or to heal. We battle wickedness, we heal from weakness. The answer is is God's word. And when we appropriate it, we have his wisdom. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who giveth liberally. He's going to give that to us. And we find his wisdom, of course, in his word. So this is a call for God's children to heed his word. To embrace the message of his word. And then to live out that instruction every day. James 1 says we're to be doers of the word, not hearers only. It doesn't do us any good to get it. And then just think, well, that was nice. That was a good talk. Good talk, Pastor. Good talk. James says, take that and do something with it. Be doers of the word, not hearers only. There is a great benefit in hearing and heeding and honoring God's word, but there's only defeat if we ignore it. In times of wickedness or in times of weakness, we need the word of God. And to ignore the word of God, we'll continue to be wicked, we'll continue to be weak. So we can't ignore it. Samson's cry, or Samson's condition and his cry, his consolation or his comfort was was God's response in giving him that water. And then the last thing is in verse 20, and it's Samson's change. I think this is a turning point in Samson's life. After this battle at Lehi, it appears that Samson changed his ways. I want you to notice what it says in verse number 20. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. That's it. That's all all it says. He judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. There are no detailed records. There are, in fact, there are no records, period, of what happened during that 20 years. That 20-year period of Israel's history 
is completely covered in that one verse. There's no other scripture you can turn to and find out what happened during Judges 15-20. It just says that during the, the next 20 years, he judged Israel. And chapter 16 and verse number 1 starts off like this. Then went Samson to Gaza, or Gaza. That then, that word then, is after those 20 years. Samson judged Israel, I believe, effectively. I think this Lehi, this after this jawbone of the ass battle, I think that was a turning point in Samson's life. And for 20 years, he judged Israel and did so effectively. If he wasn't effective, I don't believe God would have left him there for 20 years. But he did. So two things about this, about this period of two decades. First, I believe it was a, a time of obedience. Prior to this, you see Samson living a disobedient life. And then for the next 20 years, you see a tremendous change here. He's, his motivation has changed. The prayer that he prayed shows a change of his heart. And he judged Israel for 20 years. This obedience that God looks for in his people is one that honors his will above ours. And Samson had been pursuing his will all of the time. And now all of a sudden, finally, for 20 years, he does that which for which he was born. He was born to be a judge, a deliverer. And now for 20 years, he finally does it. It's a time of obedience. John 14, 15. If you love me, Keep my commandments. Romans 12 calls us to surrender and be living sacrifices. His time of ministry was only effective because it was a time of obedience. And then, not only that, it was a time of order. It was a time of obedience, but it was also a time of order. It's possible that his single-handed victory over a thousand Philistines had such an effect on the Philistines that they just weren't that much of an issue as far as, as far as, uh, treading on the Israelites like they were. Man, there's one Israelite down there killed a thousand of us. What if they band together? I mean, the Philistines didn't know about the mighty spirit of God on him, but they did know that there was one Israelite that killed a thousand of them. And the Bible, the Bible may be indicating here that there was a 20-year period of the Philistines backing off. They still, they still had Israel, but they, they didn't oppress them as much. Samson continued to subdue them, and he faithfully led God's people here for 20 years. What's the application on that? The application on that is this. If we want tranquility and stability in our life, even when our circumstances are tumultuous then what we have to do is submit to the will of God. The Philistines did not leave the Israelite borders during this 20-year period. It's just that they don't seem to have been as bad a factor as they were. So Israel's still underneath the Philistines. And yet, there doesn't seem to be as many battles. And I know our circumstances in life can be crazy, but we can still know the peace of God that passes all understanding. Simply walking in obedience in our daily living, God will give us what the world can't, and that's peace. So let's wrap this up. Uh, Samson makes a lot of sinful choices in his life. 
But he finally, at the end of this chapter, you see him humbling himself before God, submitting to the will of God, and the next thing you know, he's finally judging Israel. Now, I don't know how old he is here, but he's finally doing what God gave him to do. All of the details in Samson's life are given to those periods of disobedience, I think, so God can warn us, your life's going to be a wreck. If you, don't, if you don't obey me. You're, you're never going to make good decisions that lead to peace and fellowship with me. All of the, Go back and read. All the details of his life that we have are those terrible times. He's, he's acting in revenge or he's acting in lust or he's acting in anger. And then we have detailed stories. But in that period of time where he's obeying God, where he's Honoring God, God just says he judged Israel for 20 years. He did what I gave him to do. And there's no, there's no war going on. So the last three things, or last couple of things on your worksheet, what is the takeaway for us? What do we leave the end of Judges 15 with? What do we take away from it? First of all, take away a warning against stubbornness and insisting on doing, our, uh, doing things our way instead of God's. It's a warning against stubbornness and saying, I'm going to do it my way instead of God's. And then the second thing is there's a reminder that God is a very present help in time of trouble who promises to give victory for our obedience. Up until this point, have we not seen just defiance after defiance after rebellion after rebellion in in Samson's life? And the first time he surrenders to God, he throws himself down and says, God, if you don't do something, I'm going to die. You gave this great victory. I'm going to die of thirst if you don't do something. The first time he submits and calls out to God, God answers him. God was always a very present help for Samson. It's just that Samson never appropriated it. God's grace is always sufficient. It is always sufficient. It's a matter of me appropriating it. He will always make a way of escape for us if we'll appropriate it. We need, we need revival spiritually like he got it physically. Whether you're in a time of wickedness or a time of weakness, whether I'm in a time of wickedness or weakness, rebellion or just being attacked, whatever it is, I need revival like he got revival. Where do I get it? By the washing of the water of the word. It's God's source for wisdom in my life. He's always going to provide for us. He's always there. Just because it's the New Testament that says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, or lo, I am with you to the end of the age. Just because that's found in the New Testament doesn't mean that didn't apply to Samson. God was always with him. He was always there. And the moment God's child called out to him, God answered. That is a wonderful truth for you and me. Just walk according to God's will. Walk in obedience, and God honors that. Lord, thank you for Samson. Thank you for.